Hi, I'm your host, Coy Atkins. Today's case is one that was requested from a listener, Emily Baker, through Instagram. School is supposed to be a safe place, a place where you can be with friends, have a good time. When parents send their kids to school, they expect that they'll come home. Otherwise, no kid would ever be sent to school. So how does a seven-year-old kid disappear in plain sight in the middle of an elementary school? This is the story of Chiron Horman. Kane Horman and Desiree Young were married and expecting their first child, Kyron Horman. However, eight months into the pregnancy, Desiree and Kane got a divorce. Kyron was born September 9, 2002 in Portland, Oregon. Kane and Desiree had shared custody until 2004, and then Kane took over as having sole custody. That's when Desiree was diagnosed with kidney failure. Kane and Desiree believed that this would be the best plan for Kyron, since Desiree was going through this extensive medical process to get better. Even with her medical issues, though, Desiree still remained in Kyron's life. In 2007, Kane married Terry Moulton, who was working as a substitute teacher. Kane and Terry actually started seeing each other back in 2001, when he and Desiree were still married, and Desiree was pregnant with Kyron. Some news outlets have reported that this affair is what led to the divorce. Others have said that Kane and Desiree were already separated and going through the divorce when Kane and Terry started dating. But regardless of who was dating who, or when anyone actually started dating, no one could have seen the tragedy coming just around the corner. On Friday, June 4th, 2010, Terry took seven-year-old Kyron to a science fair at Skyline Elementary School in Portland, Oregon. Terry stayed with Kyron until the science fair ended. She took a photo of him standing next to his display about tree frogs, in the photo, Kyron is smiling at the camera, wearing his CSI t-shirt. Around 8.45 in the morning, the science fair was over. Terry went to leave the school, and Kyron walked down the hallway to his math class. When Terry left the school, she went to two different Fred Meyer grocery stores to try and pick up a medication, and that lasted until about 10 a.m. Terry and Kane also had another daughter that was born in 2008. From the time that she left the grocery store until around 11.40 a.m., Terry drove the car around, hoping that the motion of the car would soothe the baby's earache. She then went to her gym and worked out until around 12.40 p.m. At 1.21 p.m., Terry arrived home and posted a photo of Kyron at the science fair on Facebook. I also posted this picture for you to see on Instagram and Facebook at Crime Nerds Podcast. At 3.30 p.m., Terry and Kane walked down to the bus stop with their daughter to get Kyron off the bus. As they stood there and waited, they had no idea that their lives were about to change forever when the school bus pulled up. The bus arrived, and Kyron never got off. The bus driver told Kane and Terry that Kyron never got on the bus after school and that they should call the school to see what's going on. 
So Terry did just that. She called the school secretary, who then told her that Kyron had not been at school since the science fair. His first class, the one that Terry saw him walking to, he was actually marked absent, as well as every other class that day. They knew that Kyron wasn't skipping school. He was seven years old. He was shy, and he kept to himself. He wouldn't have just wandered off. At least, he wouldn't have gone off voluntarily. The secretary called 911 to report Kyron missing. The Portland Public School Board also sent out a message to every parent within the school district informing them that Kyron was missing and hoping that someone knew where he was. But there was no such luck. Law enforcement officials from multiple agencies arrived around 4.30 p.m. and they started an extensive search, mostly focusing on the school and a two-mile radius around the school. Officers didn't complete their search of the school until around 10.40 that night. They checked every possible area that a child could be. Crawl spaces, storage rooms, every classroom, closet, and cabinet, and the outbuildings. But there was just no sign of Kyron. According to Oregon Live, around 7 o'clock on the night that Kyron went missing, the sheriff also reached out to the FBI to alert them of the situation and request their help. The following day, law enforcement continued with the search efforts. They held news conferences, and the FBI and the National Guard also joined search efforts. On June 6, 50 detectives arranged to interview 300 students along with their parents at the school. The interviews lasted from around 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., and things were handled a little bit different from Kyron's family than what you normally see in cases like this. So usually, you see the parents do a news conference. They ask that if their child did go off on his own, that they return home. And if someone took their child, that they return the child. And it can be a very powerful and moving thing to watch his parents do that. The goal is, if the child did run away, that they see that their parents care about them and they just want them to be back safely. But if they were kidnapped, that hopefully the suspect will see the news conference and that this will affect them in a way that they just released the child. But that didn't happen from Kyron's family for several days. It was reported that they were actually refusing to talk to the media. They released a statement to the media that was read from a sheriff's office employee. But on June 9th, five days after Kyron was reported missing, Kane, Terry, Desiree, and her husband Tony held a news conference together. By June 13th, the search had ended. It lasted about 10 days with 1,300 volunteers from Oregon, Washington, and California. The Sheriff's Office announced at a press conference that they were looking at Chiron's disappearance differently now. They were now treating this as a criminal investigation. Over the last few years, I've been writing a fictional book called One Moment and it's now available on Amazon. It's based in St. Augustine, Florida, and it tells the story of Micah and Sarah. After spending six years in the army, Micah returned to his hometown. Returning home was never part of his plan, but after the physical, emotional, and mental stress from war, home was the best place for him. Sarah is beginning to put her life back together after escaping an abusive marriage. At 24 years old, she's a 911 dispatcher living in St. Augustine. While she is starting to heal, she crosses paths with Micah. 
Immediately, there is an undeniable connection between the two of them, and they know that they were put in each other's lives for a reason. When Sarah's jealous and abusive ex-husband finds out about the new relationship, he has to get involved himself. While this puts a strain on Sarah and Micah's relationship, dark secrets begin to come out, and they learn that maybe you never truly know someone, and sometimes the best and the worst things in life can all be traced back to one moment. One moment's available now on Amazon. It's $9.99 for a paperback copy and $2.99 for an ebook. The Amazon link is in the show notes, and if you read it, I really hope you enjoy it, and please let me know what you think of it. Even with 1,300 people searching for 10 days, there was still no signs of Chiron. While the large-scale search was called off, it didn't mean that law enforcement was stopping their search. A dive team from the sheriff's office descended in the waters around Savi Island, which is about 6 miles from the school, and they also checked around the banks of the Multima Channel. A few days later, the dive team was out again, this time during a nasty hailstorm. They were searching a pond near where Kane and Terry lived. When asked by the media why they were searching near the home, the sheriff's office just said that it was a routine check of the areas. On June 15th, 30 billboards with Kyron's picture and information were donated by the advertising agency Clear Channel. 10 were in English, 10 in Spanish, and 10 were in Russian, and they were all placed around the Portland area. Days continued to drag on with no answers. Police pulled video footage from nearby traffic cameras that were around the school, but they didn't find anything suspicious on them. I also couldn't find anything on if there were cameras inside of the school. I'm assuming that there were not at the time, because that would be the easiest way to tell where Chiron went after Terry saw him walking off. Desiree and King continued to try and spread the awareness of their son's disappearance. This time they're doing interviews with news stations, and one interview Desiree said it's like a portal opened up in the school and Chiron just vanished into it. As June was coming to an end, things began happening that almost seemed to come out of nowhere. Terry was interviewed multiple times by detectives, sometimes up to six hours. People Magazine asked her father if he thought she would be arrested and his response was, it's 50-50. And I don't know what kind of response that is, but it does not sound like he had a lot of confidence that she didn't have anything to do with his disappearance. Then, almost out of the blue, Terry was served with a restraining order and divorce papers from Kate. Now everyone's wondering what in the world is going on here. The case for the restraining order was sealed, but a summary for the case that was filed in court showed that Terry wasn't to have any parenting time while the case was open. Answers slowly began to come out about what may have led to the divorce and the restraining order. You see, detectives interviewed a lot of people, including friends, family members, co-workers, and even a landscaper that worked for Keen and Terry. And his name was Rodolfo Sanchez. Rodolfo claimed that Terry offered him a lot of money to kill Keen. Under oath, in a deposition, Rodolfo said that Terry approached him in January of 2010, which would have been just five months before Kyron went missing, and she said that she wanted him to kill Kane. But later on, 
When Rodolfo was interviewed by Terry's attorneys, he is now saying that that didn't happen and Terry never offered him any money. Investigators tried to get Rodolfo to wear a wire, trying to catch Terry saying anything incriminating, but she never said anything and this came up empty also. Around the same time, Terry took two polygraph examinations and she failed them both. Now you can take that for whatever it is because polygraphs aren't 100% accurate. But while all that's going on, a grand jury was put together, and several people were subpoenaed to testify, including D.D. Dee Spisher, who was really, really good friends with Terry. Kane believed that during the search for Chiron, D.D. had been giving Terry advice that was not in the best interest of finding Chiron. And I couldn't find exactly what this advice was that she was giving, but Kane just didn't think that it was beneficial to helping find Chiron. Regardless of what Kane thought of Didi at the time, investigators said that Didi was very cooperative with them. She consented to a search of her home and her property. And the grand jury did not reach an indictment. There just wasn't enough evidence to say that Terry had anything to do with Chiron's disappearance. And there was absolutely no evidence to show that Chiron was murdered. By November of 2010, detectives had investigated 4,257 tips, and none of those tips brought any answers. And this case just began to grow colder and colder and colder. Now, fast forward to 2012. Desiree filed a civil lawsuit against Terry, saying that Terry was responsible for Kyron's disappearance. Desiree also said in this lawsuit that Terry actually kidnapped Kyron the day that he went missing, and she was suing Terry for $10 million in damages. And I don't know if this is some sort of plan to try and get answers, because Desiree knew that there's no way that Terry could come up with $10 million. She was a substitute teacher, and her parents were believed to be the ones that paid for her lawyer, and even her parents were retired teachers. So no one has $10 million that they can pay into this lawsuit. But with this civil suit, Dee Dee was interviewed again. And during her interview this time, she wasn't as cooperative. She refused to answer 142 questions. Some of these questions were regarding where she was the day that Kyron went missing, or if she had any contact with Terry that day. She was also showed a picture of Kyron and asked if she had ever met him, but she refused to answer that as well. But whatever the cause of the lawsuit was, in 2013, Desiree dropped the lawsuit because she did not want it to interfere with the police investigation. And police also began looking for someone else. Police said that there was a witness at the school that said that they saw someone either near or in Terry's truck in the parking lot, but they couldn't give a description of if it was male, female, or what their race was. Police sent out requests through the media and the school board asking if anyone that was at the school that morning saw this person. But once again, this didn't lead anywhere, as they still don't know who this mysterious person is, or if there was ever actually anyone there. In 2016, Terry was a guest on Dr. Phil. And you know how I said it was odd in the beginning of this investigation, when no one was on the news asking for Kyron to return or be returned home? Well... On Dr. Phil, 
Terry claimed that she always wanted to talk, but she was advised by law enforcement and her attorney not to say anything. I don't think anyone expected her to confess on Dr. Phil, but he still asked her if she had anything to do with Kyron's disappearance, and she said that she did not. I'm also still waiting on an episode where someone does confess. It was also revealed on Dr. Phil that just a few weeks into the search for Kyron, Terry began having an affair with Kane's best friend. But she said that this was because Kane had cheated on her around the same time and that this was just to get revenge on him. In 2017, another grand jury was put together to hear evidence in this case. But again, they did not reach an indictment. In July of 2017, law enforcement began searching an area in Portland along Skyline Boulevard. But again, they did not find anything. In June of 2018, Jared Coley with KGW8 News reported that Desiree posted on the Find Kyron Horman Facebook page, Stay tuned. Something big is coming. I promise you. Terry isn't going to get away with staying silent about where Kyron is and not have to answer for it. And that's pretty much where this case is right now. To this day, Kyron has not been located. It's clear that people involved in this case believe that Terry has something to do with his disappearance, but there's just no evidence to charge her with anything. The Multnomah County Sheriff's Office is offering a $50,000 reward for any information leading to the discovery of Kyron Horman. At this point, the children that were at the school that day are older, and they may have seen something going on. They may have seen where Kyron went or who he was with, but at the time they didn't understand what they saw. The hope is that if they remember anything, no matter how big or small, they'll reach out to investigators. And this brings us to a conclusion of this episode. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Crime Nerds Podcast, and thank you for listening.